大家晚上好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. The Belt and Road Initiative presents a dilemma to the EU, and the EU really needs to proceed very carefully. The Belt and Road Initiative can provide much-needed infrastructure financing to partner countries, but these ventures can also lead to problematic increase in debt. The Belt and Road Initiative is Xi Jinping's signature policy. By embracing it, are we also embracing a totalitarian system and legitimizing it? Today, we have adopted our proposal on how to bring the European way to connectivity in our work to implement to increase connectivity between Europe and Asia. Hello, I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for joining me for another Merrick's Experts podcast. Five years ago, China launched its Belt and Road Initiative, the idea of better transport and infrastructure links between China, Asia, and Europe. Beijing does everything it can to promote the BRI and stresses that it brings benefits to everyone. But elsewhere, views about massive China-led infrastructure investments have changed and evolved in recent years. In Europe, some governments support the BRI. Others are more critical. French President Emmanuel Macron warned earlier this year that the new Silk Road cannot be a one-way street. So, how should Europe deal with the BRI? Should Europe embrace it or reject it? And what is the European strategy for China anyway? To discuss these questions, I got together with Teresa Fallon. She's the director of CREAS, the Center for Russia-Europe-Asia Studies, a think tank based in Brussels. Before we discussed strategy, she told me about Europe's initial reaction to the Chinese idea. Xi Jinping, when he came to Brussels, actually spoke about this, and after he left, it didn't seem that、uh, the Europeans caught on. So they had a second follow-up conference called. Did you hear what Xi Jinping said? <laughs> it wasn't a very catchy. It was a very strange title, and it was to drive home the point that we're we're offering you this Belt and Road Initiative. And the Europeans were a bit skeptical. They weren't even sure what it meant. Xi Jinping's visit to Brussels that was in 2014, wasn't it? Nowadays, the idea behind the BRI is a little clearer, I suppose. In Europe, Greece springs to mind, the Port of Piraeus, although Chinese involvement there actually predates the BRI. But there's also the planned high-speed railway link between Budapest and Belgrade. Chinese investment in the Balkans. Are all these specific Silk Road projects, or is BRI just a label for Chinese investments in Asia and Europe?、Uh, BRI is, I would characterize as three things. One, it's a branding exercise, and it's a top-down、uh, to tell the Chinese people this is what we're doing. We're China Dream is being made real by creating this Belt and Road Initiative. The second aspect of it is to export their overcapacity, and they have huge overcapacity because of the state-owned enterprises. And the last is that they're looking for markets and and creating this new infrastructure. Some people see it as all roads lead back to Beijing. It's multiple routes, and the the maritime component is actually. A key strategic issue because, for example, Vanuatu, these countries were not on the original Silk Road. So many strategists say, well, this is clearly a strategy because it's incorporating Pacific issues. For the Europeans, it's economic, but also the maritime component is very key because China went from no investment in any of the ports to ten percent, and that's very dramatic, and that's been on Brussels' radar now. So, as you pointed out, Piraeus predates the Belt and Road Initiative, but. Chinese investment to modernize the Piraeus port has been a dramatic improvement, and 
the idea was to have the port and then use it as a base. The problem with the the proposed rail is that it it goes through one member state and one proposed member state. So the Chinese can operate very easily in Serbia, do investments. They don't have to follow the same rules that an EU member state has to follow. And Hungary had agreed to this rail, and uh, it was a very uh, untransparent type of uh, process. So Brussels called them in on it, and it's be- it was being investigated. Some economists have said it would take 125 years for this rail to even become profitable. We could get money from the European fund to build this infrastructure, why are we taking a loan when we could actually get zero interest uh, loan from the EU to build this infrastructure? So this has created some some unrest. And Hungary is trying to signal maybe uh, under Orban that we have other options. If you don't like what we're doing here in Hungary, we can turn to China and China can uh, invest in our economy. That's the political side. But on the economic side, I mean, yes, maybe in Hungary there are some doubts over whether um, the Chinese money is really necessary. But in many Central European, Southeastern European countries within and outside the EU, um, investment from China would be very welcome. I mean, these countries are desperate for infrastructure investment aren't they? So um, they would actually benefit from Chinese investments under the BRI label? Of course, it seems very attractive. Everyone wants investments. And it seems that China has lots of money to spread around. So it seems very attractive. But uh, we've seen problems of debt trap diplomacy. Now, after being around for five years, it's easier to make an assessment of Chinese uh, investments. And we've seen with Hampontata port in Sri Lanka, they had so much debt that very similar to what happened with Hong Kong, the Chinese uh, government said, don't worry about all the debt, um, just sign over the port for 99 years, just like Hong Kong was signed over to the British for 99 years. So this is in the Indo-Pacific. This might seem far away for Europeans, but we also see right in the European neighborhood, Djibouti is under a similar situation. There's also the first overseas Chinese base there. So this has it's a very important issue for, for Europe that the, it's on their radar now. China isn't so far away anymore, and their investments can have a huge impact on their own security as well as economy. The other issue for Central and Eastern Europe with the 16 plus one, you have 11 EU member states and five possible accession states. And the Chinese narrative is that we want to help them become EU members. But the reality is that the investments that China has made in possible accession states has actually pulled them away from the EU. For example, in Serbia, a few years ago, China wasn't really even on their radar. And within a short period of time, Serbian officials will say China is the fourth pillar of our foreign policy. So instead of being able to join the EU, they've done several studies. And over the years, actually, Chinese investments, as well as Russian investments, have pulled Serbia away. So they uh, do not meet the criteria to become a member state. And it's getting further and further away from that. Now, uh, let's stick with Serbia then for a moment. What type of investments are those that are actually pulling uh, Serbia further away from EU membership? Are we talking about like uh, power stations that don't uh, comply with EU environmental standards? Or uh, what are the problems there? If you look at the actual figures of investment, it's not very high, and it's almost the promise of investment. The rail, for example, it's not hasn't materialized, but we've seen that Hungary has actually played a spoiler on several issues for European unity. Uh, for example, two years ago with the South China Sea arbitral tribunal decision, Philippines versus China, uh, everyone expected the EU to speak with one voice on that. They support the rule of law. If that's anything that they support the EU should support rule of law. And there was also envisioned possibly a joint statement between the US, EU, and Japan to show international solidarity. But the EU was unable to do that. And it was kind of the usual suspects. Greece and Hungary voted to have it watered down. So 
the EU was unable to come up with a strong statement. They actually came down with a very watered-down, weak statement that just merely acknowledged the arbitral tribunal decision. And Beijing saw that as a victory. They saw that Europe was neutral, so that they saw that as a big victory. And sadly, it was a sign that Europe could no longer speak with one voice. We've seen other actions recently with in regard to human rights. Every year, the EU submits uh, to Geneva at the UN a statement on human rights, but this year, Greece... Uh, prevented that from happening. So China's investments have actually weakened Europe's ability to speak with one voice and uh, issues on human rights, um, international law. So China's investments have paid off. So you think that on the Chinese side, there's a strategy behind all that, actually to drive a wedge into Europe, to divide Europe, to prevent them from speaking with one voice? So it goes beyond the economic goals that you pointed out earlier? The 16 plus 1 is something that predates the Belt and Road Initiative, but it's actually been carefully folded into it. And this is something that has really made Brussels very concerned because of it's a sub-regional grouping within Europe and China has been very active there. It seems that they see that Central and Eastern Europe is a key area for their strat strategy for if you look at the Belt and Road, some people see it as you know controlling the Eurasian continent. So this is kind of a an interesting area where the Europe and Russia meet. And so it's very fragile in the sense that these are new uh, democracies with very shallow roots. So China kind of invests there and actually finds the weakness and it's dividing uh, West Europe from Eastern Europe. And this is causing a lot of concern in Brussels. The European project itself could be imperiled because we see that the new possible accession states uh, are, are very fragile and weak. We talked about Serbia, but also Montenegro. 25% of their GDP goes to this road that China has invested in. And Montenegro is now a member of NATO. So right on Europe's periphery, we see a lot of fragility and uh, debt trap. And so China has a lot more influence there. So this is something even Chancellor Merkel warned China about their their investments in the region. They're looking at it with a great deal of skepticism and concern. You just talked there about Central and Eastern Europe, but um, promising investment is one thing. Now, in Montenegro, that has materialized. Uh, you just mentioned that road. But promising investment usually is one thing. Actually, um, then implementing projects is, is another. So how about uh, Central and Eastern European countries like Poland, like the Czech Republic or Bulgaria or Romania? So is China actually investing there? I mean, is it investing real money there? Or are we still talking about promises and plans under the BRI label? That's a very good question. Early on, these uh, member states would have conferences. I attended several in Romania, and now they're cancelled because they call it promise fatigue. So initially, everyone was very enthusiastic and wanted to attract as much uh, investment from China. And it was all like, pick me, pick me. And so they were all trying to roll out um, special deals for to attract Chinese investment. And I think China kind of likes to wait and see how their influence can be used. So for very little investment, they actually gained a lot of political capital in those areas. But now there's a bit more skepticism since this promise fatigue has set in. This is Merrick's Experts. My guest today is Theresa Fallon, director of the Brussels-based Center for Russia, Europe, Asia Studies. We're discussing China's Belt and Road Initiative and Europe's response to it. Given the promised fatigue, how is the EU responding to the BRI reaching well into Europe these days? At the uh, Belt and Road Forum, otherwise known as BARF, in, held in Beijing, I think Beijing was very disappointed because they tried to get all the EU member states to sign on the statement. But Yurki Katainen, the head of transport, 
really maintain discipline. So I was very surprised that not, they couldn't peel off Greece or Hungary. Everyone refrained from signing the statement. So the Chinese saw this as a big disaster because they wanted to have as many countries sign on and support and legitimize the Belt and Road Initiative. So the Europeans were very disciplined and did not agree to it. And then in, in April, there was this letter by the, the, those 27 out of 28 EU ambassadors to China, voicing their criticism of the BRI, right? Yes, it came as quite a surprise to me that they were that organized and that the usual uh, suspect, Hungary, refrained from signing the document. The 27 ambassadors to China signed this statement, but it's hard to know what was in it because it was never revealed. And this letter seems to have disappeared. But what is the main criticism? I mean, we know in terms of the 16 plus one that uh, the EU is not happy that China is sort of trying to divide Europe. But when it comes to the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, what are, apart from the debt and the debt trap diplomacy that you mentioned earlier, what are the main concerns of the Europeans? We've seen a change in investment patterns from Central and Eastern Europe more towards high tech. So certain high tech that the Chinese are unable to buy in the US, they turn to Europe for. The Committee for Foreign Investment in the US, otherwise known as CFIUS, has been undergoing reform. So it's far more difficult for Chinese to invest in high tech in the US. So of course, they turn to Europe. And Germany, France and Italy approached the Commission and the Parliament with a letter are asking for a foreign direct investment screening mechanism. Now, out of the 28 EU member states, only 14 have something in place, and a lot of these are toothless. The other 14 have absolutely nothing. So this idea that we're, you know, we're open, we're free traders, some countries are reluctant to even introduce this type of mechanism. But three years ago, when I was doing research on this, each member state is rather jealous. They want to, to of course, attract as much investment as possible. They don't want to give that power to the European Commission. So this is a huge turnaround. And my uh, analysis of that is that it's easier to say um, no to China if you don't have to say no yourself, that you say, well, I would love to let you invest in that port, Beijing, but Brussels won't let me. So this kind of kicks the can down the road, and these member states don't have to say no to China. And more specifically now, um, just a few weeks ago, Brussels or the EU Commission came up with its own connectivity strategy. Um, is that then Europe's answer to the BRI? Technically, they say it's not their answer to the BRI, but everyone I've spoken to in Brussels agrees that it is an answer to the BRI. The Europeans are very cautious. The word China doesn't even appear in the 14-page uh, connectivity uh, report. It took them a long time to get this done. It was supposed to originally be published in June or July. On September 19th, it was re released. So it's kind of a long list of things that they would like to accomplish. There's For example? This idea of responding to connectivity issues where they have been absent in, in respect. And Europe's position is always that we don't do geopolitics. But by Coming up with this report, it does show that they have a lot of concern about what's happening in their neighborhood, as well as Eurasia and Central Asia, and they need to be more proactive on this. So this is kind of setting a marker, saying we are paying attention. This is an area that we uh, must no longer be disconnected from, and geopolitics is now on our radar. So that's a huge change from what they were saying just a year ago. But does it come, I mean, this connectivity plan, does it come with like money attached? Does it mean that uh, like under the BRI, like, like the Chinese project, that uh, the EU is now going to build ports and 
bridges and airports and roads to improve the connectivity across the EU and uh, with the neighboring countries? The EU actually has a lot of funds, but they're not very good at advertising what they do. Whereas the Chinese might even put a lot less in, but they're very good at commercializing it, showing the world, look what we've done, and they advertise it on, on front page of newspapers all over the world. So the Chinese have been very good about uh, spreading the word, whereas the Europeans have not. So they haven't been very good at advertising this, but um, would you still see uh, this connectivity strategy then as Europe's answer, but maybe also as, as a way of competing then with China? I think the Europeans initially thought they would get a lot of money um, from China. Who's going to say no to free money? But it did, never turned out that way. And the fact that the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, which is part of this whole narrative of the Belt and Road, hasn't invested in any Belt and Road projects is kind of a, a warning sign that these projects might not be as good as everyone imagines. So the Europeans are kind of saying there is an alternative way. All the, the norms and laws that they've worked so hard to create, they want to support. So the three main areas are uh, sustainable investment, protection of the environment, and an equal playing field. Many European companies would love to get a piece of this pie and and be part of these infrastructure projects. But what we've seen is that the majority of them go to Chinese businesses. 89% of the projects are for Chinese uh, companies. So the Europeans would like to get part of that, but it's unclear if that will actually happen. Because, I mean, it seems like it's a, it's 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 too little too late. Um, China is already out there with all these loans and uh, projects and investments. Yes, it's probably too little too late, but uh, the Europeans now especially are waking up to what's happened in Africa. China has had a huge role in investments in Africa, and the Europeans traditionally had interest in that region. They stopped making investments there or offering loans because they found it very difficult to compete with China's no-strings-attached policies. Okay, then is the problem of the EU then coming up with a response to the BRI and coming up with its own strategy, is then that maybe indicative of uh, the difficulties of uh, coming up with a joint EU strategy at all? The, the connectivity paper, by many accounts, it took so long to actually write because so many member states we're trying to block certain things. So it doesn't really, it's 14 pages, but it's more like a report. It doesn't really feel like a strategy at all, and uh, it's weak. But uh, on typical EU types of things, they start weak and, and slow, but maybe it will build up momentum. But it's difficult now because of Chinese strategic investments have are actually paying off, and it's kind of blocking the ability of the EU to take uh, speak with one voice and move ahead on these issues. So then if you then look to the future, we've seen five years of BRI. Um, if we look ahead to the next five years, what are we going to see? More BRI investments in Europe or maybe more restrictions for China in the EU because of the growing concerns? There seems to be a lot of BRI backlash throughout the world. We've seen the Maldives, Sri Lanka, um, Malaysia. So in Europe, I imagine that there's also going to be some pushback. And I would say the connectivity paper is also a pushback. The FDI screening mechanism is also a pushback. And even kind of calling out China, the IMF, when Lagarde uh, said, you know, be careful, be, you know, you're creating a lot of problems for the world with these debt. Uh, projects. So, be, you know, we would like to see you do sustainable investment. So I think Europeans are becoming far more skeptical about China's strategy in the region. And looking ahead five years, everything can be described as Belt and Road. I've seen a ceramics company making little figures uh, folded into the Belt and Road narrative. So anything that's a success, the Chinese are eager to, to label that as a Belt and Road initiative. 
And also in Brussels, we see that the Belt and Road narrative is used for just about everything. So if they're unhappy about market economy status, they have a Belt and Road conference. If they're looking for, uh, if they're showing concerns about world uh, WTO, World Trade Organization reform, they have a Belt and Road conference, and they they fold that into the narrative. This year, they're celebrating the 15th anniversary of strategic partnership, and China is trying to actually charm the Europeans and they're they're increasing the charm offensive so we see the Chinese have put more money into this ability to try to charm Europe and pull them back into their their orbit so finally then Teresa let's come back to the question we started off with how should Europe deal with China's BRI should the EU embrace it reject it engage with China in a different way the one word I hear constantly in Brussels is naive Does China think that we're so naive? So the feeling is that they were taken advantage of by China having such an open market and the lack of reciprocity. European businesses find it very difficult to do uh, conduct business inside China or have investments. So there's kind of this desire for a, a more fair playing field. But this also brings a dilemma for the Europeans. Uh, the Europeans always thought that they could help change China, similar to what the Americans as well, this kind of missionary zeal. But the reality is that China has actually changed Europe more than Europe has been able to change China. For example, we have the famous case of the Cambridge University Press, otherwise known as CUP, the most prestigious international journal. They were willing to self-censor uh, to get into the Chinese market. Springer, another publisher is willing to self-censor in order to get into the Chinese market. It's a huge market, and 1.4 billion people is being leveraged, perhaps, by the Chinese uh, with the promise of you know future investments and, and money. The Belt and Road Initiative is Xi Jinping's signature policy, its signature strategy. By embracing it, are we also embracing a totalitarian system and legitimizing it? How does Europe respond? How does the U.S. respond? This is the key question. With the Soviet Union, we kind of had a way to deal with the Soviet Union. They weren't a big exporter, only in energy. So that's where the trade between Europe and the Soviet Union existed. And it seemed to exist in a somewhat of comfortable place. But China is really uncharted territory, and we really don't know how to proceed. So we have to be very cautious. The Belt and Road Initiative uh, presents a dilemma to the EU, and the EU really needs to proceed very carefully. So, a rather cautious assessment there on whether to embrace China's Belt and Road Initiative. Thanks, Teresa, for sharing your insights. That was Teresa Fallon of CREAS, the Center for Russia-Europe-Asia Studies in Brussels. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.